It's January 22, 2007, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre here in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. I'm often asked about guest conductors. How are they chosen? How are they evaluated? What kind of atmosphere do they bring to the podium? Well, in a modern symphony orchestra, guest conductors are in place for a significant portion of every season. They make a very important contribution to the artistic health of any orchestra, as they bring fresh outlook and different vision. Guest conductors hold up a mirror to the orchestra. They allow us to see ourselves and our musical identity in new ways. This season, the National Arts Centre Orchestra is seeing several guest conductors for the first time, and a couple who we have not worked with in a number of years. In January, we worked with Thomas Dausgaard for the first time, and last week we had our second experience with the Estonian Eri Klaas. Coming up very soon, Gustavo Dudamel, who appears with the orchestra next week. In December, the highly successful American Andrew Litton returned to Southam Hall for the first time in several years, and led the orchestra in a refreshing program that featured Stravinsky's Firebird. We'll hear portions of that very concert in today's NACOcast. Andrew Litton stepped down in May as music director of the Dallas Symphony after 12 successful seasons, in which he led the orchestra on three European tours, four visits to Carnegie Hall, and produced six nationally broadcast television programs, and, get this, 28 recordings in repertoire ranging from Gershwin to Mahler. Andrew Lytton also remains conductor laureate of Britain's Bournemouth Symphony, which he previously led, and he'll be appearing as guest conductor with many major orchestras and opera companies of Europe and North America. Andrew Lytton is in his fourth season as the first American music director of Norway's Bergen Philharmonic, and that's a 242-year-old orchestra which was once led by none other than Edvard Grieg. Lytton takes the Bergen Philharmonic on extensive European touring this season including the orchestra's 2007 debut at the renowned London BBC Proms, where Lytton is a favourite from his prior appearances with both the Bournemouth and Dallas orchestras. When he took over the Minnesota Orchestra Summerfest four years ago, Andrew Lytton was charged with turning around the flagging fortunes of that 25-year-old summer festival. Ticket sales have risen 30% in the last two summers, with Lytton performing as conductor, piano soloist, and chamber musician in a variety of programs, including a semi-staged, standing-room-only performance of Bizet's Carmen. During his recent visit to Ottawa, I invited Andrew to our NACOcast studio to talk about the differences in orchestras between North America and Europe. It was certainly a great pleasure to speak with him, as he and I have been friends for many years. In this interview, you'll find Andrew Lytton to be a passionate and a committed conductor who absolutely adores his work. I hope you enjoy this interview.
Andrew Litton, it's great to have you here in Ottawa. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. When were you here last? I think it was at least 15 years ago. It was a long time ago. I've been to Canada quite a few times since, but not with the National Arts Centre. Are you observing any more gray hair in the orchestra? <laughs> well, just some new faces like yours, for yeah. example. I knew you from the, the West Coast. Uh, you and uh, I have a famous tradition. We actually shared an amazing experience about seven or eight years ago. We almost got killed together. That's true. And I can't say I've shared that experience with too many other people. Well, um, now everyone's going to know. The story is, is that I was driving you, and we were driving a Porsche. Right. And it was a very wet, rainy night. It was in Vancouver. And those of our listeners who, who know Vancouver and know the causeway in Stanley Park will know that it's a three-lane road, which is divided according to times. So sometimes it's two lanes going south, and sometimes two lanes going north. And we were in one lane going north, and somebody decided that they were going to take the third lane going south. And all of a sudden, you, you and I were having a conversation. We looked ahead, and all, we, there was someone headed directly at us. And to this day, I don't know what laws of physics I disobeyed in order to get that car up on the curb and out of the way. Uh, it's a shame that they weren't shooting footage for a Bond film, actually, because I think that car maneuver would have been... Casino Royale. Yeah, Casino Royale. It would Here have we been, come. Yeah, it would have been great. Anyway, you proceeded to say, after we had regained our composure, that it would have made a bit of a dent in the next night's performance, wouldn't it? <laughs> no conductor and no bassoonist. It was certainly one for the books. I, As a matter of fact... Um, you know, I only think about that particular incident when I see you. <laughs> so <laughs> It's a good thing. It's not something you want to recall too often. No, exactly. So you're back back here in North America after a busy fall schedule, mostly in Europe. Correct. Um, I have an orchestra that I'm so proud to be music director of in Norway, the Bergen Philharmonic, a 242-year-old orchestra that it's my mission for more people to know about. It's actually a superb orchestra. And one of my goals is to do a lot more touring. And actually, just two weeks ago, we had a a very successful, if I do say so myself, German tour, uh, successful in that it was sold out audiences and standing ovations at the end and three encores and all that sort of stuff. But the orchestra played fantastically well. Another work of Stravinsky, like we're doing here in Ottawa, but this time the Rite of Spring. And that's a really interesting work to take on tour. I'd never toured with it before, but all these different acoustics and all those complicated rhythms, and it's quite a challenge every now, the, night. The original score for soccer, of course, has very large orchestra, many wins. Are you touring with the full complement? Oh, yeah. We toured with over about 110 musicians. It was a big crowd. So this begs the question, which I wanted to get to, about one of the primary interests uh, for me in watching your career, first as a, a young American conductor coming up and having huge success in the States, and your long residency as music director in Dallas, and now you've moved to Europe. And there's a lot of differences. There's differences in the in the structure of the orchestras, in the traditions, in the the, the whole uh, ethos of the way orchestras work over there. So the first question is, what uh, what kind of challenges do you have? Budgetary challenges for for traveling with an orchestra of that size? How is that possible? Well, it, that's a great question because one of the joys of working with a European orchestra, certainly a Norwegian orchestra. We are 95% state-funded, or as I like to put it, the king writes us a check every year that covers 95% of our operating uh, costs. Um, but that actually is just for business as usual. So touring really comes out of a different pot. We are very lucky to have landed the largest corporate sponsorship in Western Norwegian history last year from the biggest Norwegian bank, DNB Nor, it's called. And they've actually given us what's essentially a touring fund. The idea being they want us to go to places where they have uh, a presence and 
they'll use us for entertaining and for, you know, wowing their other clients, as it were. So on this most recent tour to Germany, we also stopped in Copenhagen, which is a big headquarters for them. Um, this summer, this coming summer, we'll have a concert. Uh, I'm not allowed to, to say where, but it's at a very famous festival in London that takes place in a round building. Um, the, the BBC has a, a moratorium on, on, you know, being able to announce yes. whatever's going on in that particular round building until April. And since this podcast is going to go out in January, I can't say more. Okay. But um, also a concert in the Kasserkabau in, in Amsterdam. And these are both venues that the bank is very excited about. So, of course, they will help fund those tours. And then in November, exactly, well, 11 months from now, we'll be touring the United States and we'll have to have that wonderful, where I'll be a nervous wreck because I'm a New York City boy originally, we will have a Carnegie Hall appearance and the bank is going to throw a huge party there. So, so it's really worked out terrifically well for us that we can actually afford to take these huge pieces on tour because the bank doesn't care as long as they see a big orchestra and we play a little Norwegian music occasionally. So is, is this kind of arrangement becoming the norm in the Northern European orchestras? Absolutely. It's really, it's really the way of the future, I think. And, and, and I, interestingly enough, it's been the way of survival in the States for, for many, many years. You know, in Dallas, we completely relied on corporate and private sector funding. We got nothing from the government. So um, I think this sort of hybrid, this sort of combination of fundings is the way of the future. Um, there's still not really a tax incentive in Europe for private giving. But for corporate giving, as long as they get something back in return, there seems to be an increasing look at philanthropy, especially when it comes to um, exposing young people to culture and to arts. And I, th I find that very exciting. So uh, we were talking about the, the differences between America and Europe. That's that I can speak to that. I can't really speak to the differences between Canada and Europe because I've only been to Canada as a guest conductor. But uh, certainly uh, from America, where we relied so much, I mean, half of my job, I would say, as music director in Dallas was fundraising or something to do with the bottom line. It wasn't about the music. And so it's such a relief to me in a way after 12 years to just really be worrying about the music most of the time. I really much prefer that. Having said that, there's no greater thrill in a way as a music director of an American orchestra when you've not only gotten a great concert onto the stage, but you've also gotten the money for it as well. And I'll... I'll never forget even even a situation like we were making our ways through one of my favorite, favorite composers is Shostakovich. And we were making our way through all the symphonies. Um, we, we did almost all of the symphonies. But I was desperate to do number four. Number four takes 13 extra musicians. And we got to just before the season and the president of the orchestra came to me and says, we really, you know, the budget's tight. We really, really can't afford this. And then the most... A miraculous, although tragic, thing happened. One, a longtime supporter of the orchestra, Stanley Marcus of, of Neiman Marcus fame, passed away, and the orchestra and I decided to do a, a memorial a concert in his honor for the family. And in fact, I even flew back from London, basically for twenty-four hours, because I was doing an opera at the time in London, to do this uh, memorial concert. I played a little piano. I conducted. At the end of the concert, the family said, we'd like to give you something. And the players of the orchestra chose 
a fantastic cappuccino machine that's in the <laughs> musician's lounge. And I said, can I please do Shostakovich 4? They cost the same, by the way. So I got my Shostakovich 4, um, and I was so thrilled. But it was, again, this sort of strange almost a divine gift. It came from, you know, it almost came from the grave, as it were. This. I'm trying to figure out what kind of a cappuccino machine would cost the same as 13 musicians for Shostakovich 4. You have to visit the Lucerne Festival or come to the Meyerson now in Dallas and see this machine. It's really amazing. It's nuclear powered. It's nuclear powered. You can, you can basically serve an entire orchestra a cappuccino and the first three minutes of a break. <laughs> so if the financial realities are so different in Europe from, uh, from the United States and, and yes, from Canada too, how are the, what is the musical climate, the climate within rehearsals and in concerts for making music? How, how is it different? Or do you find it changes radically from one orchestra to another? I think it changes radically from one orchestra to another. There are certain stereotypes you can make or certain certain generalizations. Um, but for example, my orchestra in Dallas was much more formal. Uh, maybe it's that Southern upbringing, I don't know, but much more formal than, say, the orchestra I also have a very close relationship with in, this, in America, which is Minnesota. I run the Minnesota Orchestra Summer Festival, which is called Zomerfest. In Minnesota, I'm Andrew. In 12 years in Dallas, it was Mr. Litton or Maestro. There was never any, um, you know, any uh, different. I, I could never get anybody to call me Andrew. And it's just a, But was that because you were the music director and, and there was be. a vested authority there? It could be, but it's still still odd. And, of course, my first orchestra ever was the Bournemouth Symphony, which was uh, in, I started in 1988 as their chief conductor. I was Andrew there. And now in Bergen, I'm Andrew again. You know, so it's just, it's just very funny. There was a, a sort of formality. So, again, that's orchestra dependent. That has nothing to do with, with the country. Um, but overall... I mean, this is well documented. Many of my colleagues will will be quick to comment on the fact that North American orchestras, in general, are much faster. They're very they come to rehearsal prepared, um, and for the most part, and you know the the first rehearsal is already sounding pretty darn good. Yet you work on the continent, uh, and you've got first of all more rehearsal time. But the first rehearsals are are dreadful. <laughs> you know, you think, oh my gosh, it's going to be a long week, and of course. Once you drill something, you know it 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 rapidly improves. But um, the exception, of course, is is Great Britain, where the orchestras are trained to to be as fast as we are, really. In some cases, the London orchestras are the best sight readers I think on the planet. They're incredible. You know, there's nothing's too hard. You know, right out of the box. Um, and now, my experiences with the with the Scandinavian market, they're they're also pretty quick and pretty serious about coming to rehearsals prepared. In fact, very often in Bergen, the orchestra will call their own sectionals if it's a particularly tough piece before the conductor ever shows up, which is which is very nice feeling indeed. Why do you think it is that there is this tradition of sort of a lax attitude to early rehearsals in in Europe? I just think that they've known for, for for centuries now that they're going to have a very long rehearsal period. I mean, don't forget, it wasn't that long ago when, when Gustav Mahler would have 27 rehearsals for one of his symphonies, you know, and now we put them together in three. In Minnesota, I put them together in two rehearsals sometimes, you know, these Mahler symphonies that nobody could play 100 years ago. And now, What, what is your normal schedule in Bergen? In Bergen, we, we rehearse um, 10 to 3, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Thursday's dress rehearsal and... Uh, Concert. So that's substantially more than you'd get in North yeah, America. Yeah. Um, and I mean, 
the orchestra prefers 10 to 2, which is also an option, but I take that extra hour. And during that time, there's about uh, 45 minutes worth of break. So it's a pretty pretty generous rehearsal period. And very often, because I have that uh, time, I, I will have sectionals myself, which is a wonderful way, especially if you're working on a very complicated piece like a Mahler symphony. It's a wonderful way to really get get down and dirty and really clean stuff up. People often talk about the internationalization of orchestral styles and sounds. What does your orchestra sound like in Bergen, and how is it different from your orchestra in Dallas? Well, the orchestra in Bergen has many more nationalities than the orchestra in Dallas, interestingly enough. And, you know, we often think of North American orchestras as being, of course, a melting pots. But for some reason, the, the Bergen Philharmonic has um, a truly... Uh, a sort of rainbow of of different nationalities. We have 16 nationalities in the orchestra. It's 40% foreign. Um, and it creates a, a very unique sound. It's not at all. I was recently working with a Finnish orchestra, the Lati Orchestra, and everybody on stage was Finnish. So they've all had the same teachers and they've all had the same background and the same training. In the Bergen Philharmonic, that's completely not the case, again, resembling a bit more of the American or Canadian uh, model. But the Bergen Philharmonic plays with a huge amount of abandon. And I think that starts from the woodwind section, actually. They play um, with, uh, first of all, they're <laughs> amongst the loudest woodwinds I've ever heard in my life. They also play with a lot of expressiveness and a lot of... Um, extremes and dynamic. And so then as a result, you get a sort of character to the sound that is not so apparent, for example, in certain American orchestras. You get a sort of very safe um, approach to the same passage, perhaps, in the same piece. But, you know, it might be more in tune, but it's also not going to be quite as... as um, full of contrast and dynamic range. Um, the strings in Bergen are amazingly refined sounding, very rich. Um, I And what I love about the orchestra is that when it comes to performance, because this is a lot like the way I am, I, I believe a performance is what our art is all about. 
It's not the rehearsals. Rehearsals are there so everybody dots their I's and crosses their T's and crosses the road in the right place. And, you know, there hopefully will be no accidents if you've rehearsed something very well. When you get to the performance and there's an audience sitting there, that's when classical music or music in general or any performing art becomes the art. Until then, it's nothing. It's a blank canvas. So um, I believe performances of the time when, heck, when you get dirty, when you, when you absolutely get muddy, get dirty, get bloody, whatever, and you should not take any prisoners. A performance is all about giving your all. And at the end, it should be the audience that's exhausted as well as you on stage if they've experienced the right sort of performance. Um, I don't mean exhausted in a negative way. I mean exhausted spiritually, emotionally. Uh, it should be something that galvanizes the public because this, again, is when you're sharing your art with them. And what I love about Bergen is that that's exactly the way they play. I don't know if they know that that's exactly the way they play, and maybe that's why I love them so much. They really... I never walk off stage thinking we could have given more. I, I never do. And I have to say that hasn't always been the case in my career. Is there a sense in rehearsals that you hold back the parameters of expression in rehearsal because you want to not not explore those areas that you're going to take a chance at in the in the concert? That's very true for me. I I do try and show the parameters tempo-wise so that um, nobody's thrown off by, oh my gosh, why did he suddenly take off so fast? We didn't ever do that. Um, I try and you know, one time or other show, well, this might happen. But um, particularly in heavy emotional programs like, for example, I'm keeping bringing back Shostakovich symphonies, but uh, since it's been the centenary of his birth, we've done, I've done almost every week has had Shostakovich in it. This is the first week here in Ottawa in a while when there hasn't been some Shostakovich in my program. You know, music like this, it's very hard if you rehearse it with the same intensity as you're intending on performing it because after a while, you're you're not being true anymore. There's, there's a certain amount of the life experience in Shostakovich that you have to save for the moment, I just find. And, and it's not just with Shostakovich. It's with just about anything written from 1850 on. You know, there's, there's, there's uh, certain realms of expression that let's say let's put it this way you can just do once a day you know <laughs> there's certain things you can just do once a day and that's one of them
You've made your career uh, in, in your huge discographies, mainly focused on music from 1850 and afterwards. A lot of Shostakovich, of course, Rachmaninoff. Not a lot of the classical repertoire in your recording history. Is the classical repertoire less suited to your temperament? I think there are so many people that do classical repertoire well, and the authentic instrument movement has certainly uh, made a huge impact on the way we all look at at the classical repertoire. Um, I have to say that I think one of my f- favorite composers, if not my favorite composer, if you were sitting here with a gun in my head, I would have to say Beethoven. But I don't particularly perform him well, I don't think. I mean, I he's my hero. But I think there's so many people that have something really special to say about Beethoven. Me, it's all internal. I would rather, I would rather experience somebody else doing great Mozart or Beethoven or, or Bach or Handel. Um, sure, I, I perform them. I think it's extremely important to, to keep performing. And, and, you know, opera is a completely different story for me. Fidelio is one of my favorite pieces. I love to conduct Fidelio. Um, and, and the Mozart operas, I had a fantastic time. I got to conduct the magic flute a few years back. I, I can't remember a happier time in my life. So opera is kind of different with me, but as far as the symphonic repertoire goes, um, and even as a pianist, um, I played all the Beethoven concertos and quite a few of the Mozarts, but not in public, really. <laughs> it's just never, never felt that comfortable with the it. The potential for emotional expression in classical music is somewhat more uh, refined, more limited than in the late Romantic and, and 20th century repertoire, which, which I think says, says something when I, when I look at you play in the abandonment. Abandon do you hear what I said? When you play, yeah. you know, when you play the orchestra, you play, play the orchestra with great abandon in concerts. It's very exciting. But getting back to, to Beethoven, do you feel when you conduct Beethoven an uncomfortable obligation to find something new to say when you conduct, say, the Fifth Symphony? Is yeah, actually, no. And maybe that's why I feel reticent to conduct him. I, I would just rather, you know, I, I, I grew up with Carl Berm conducting the Vienna Philharmonic in my head or, or, or George Sell conducting Cleveland. And, and these were very standard performances. Nobody was, you know, we didn't even have the fancy new editions then. You so know? Do, you, do you feel you can't get past the, past that uh, that style that that kind of interpretation? In a way, but I also feel like uh, the con- the sort of contemporary view of of Beethoven as of these very fast speeds, this almost uh, breathtakingly fast uh, tempos. For example. Uh, well, let's look at the last movement of the Ninth Symphony. The recitativo now is taken really as if it has a click track going in it. You know, and I can't, with all due respect to all these people who have, have made recordings recently that way, wonderful, good for you. I, I can't do that. So I almost feel like I shouldn't. Because people are going to be expecting to hear it that way. I, I'm, I'm old-fashioned. I, I like, I like. If something says recitative, I think it should be free, like a recitative, and not have a Louis Clark uh, drum machine going in the background. Your most re- recent recording project is Mendelssohn. Yeah. Well, we're just starting in Bergen to record all the Mendelssohn symphonies for for the Swedish label Bis. Um, very excited about that. Our first record's coming out in January, uh, the Prokofiev Romeo and Juliet suites, but done in the order of the ballet. So it's not suite one, suite two, suite three, but it's hopping back and forth between all the excerpts. And I think it's a, it's kind of an interesting idea. It's certainly the first time that's been done. 
Um, but what I like about it is they, they really are the best bits of the ballet. So once you realize that you're actually covering all the best music of the ballet and then to have them in order, it's quite interesting. For example, the first five numbers of this, uh, on this recording, everything's very light and happy and cheerful. And you realize, well, of course it is because nothing bad has happened yet in this soon to be love story, you know? Um, so it's, I, I'm thrilled with the results and I hope the, I hope it gets a good critical reaction because this is the first one. This is our first collaboration. Why Mendelssohn? This was Biss's idea. Um, one of my first records back in the eighties was the Midsummer Night's Dream incidental music with the London Philharmonic and, and Robert Suff, who does A&R for Biss has always loved that recording. And he just says, you know, I'd love to have you do, these Mendelssohns and I say, and and he says I think the orchestra would be perfect for it and I have to say with with the character of our winds and with the um, the beautiful sound in our strings I hope he's right I mean we we really are we were supposed to start this project this past summer and and there was a, a labor dispute uh, sadly in in Norway all the Norwegian orchestras went out on strike but fortunately that's all been resolved now um, with with fortunately a, a nice improvement in salary for the musicians it's not as much as they should have gotten but it's it's a step in the right direction. So anyway, we lost out on actually two different recording projects during that time, but they've all been rescheduled. So in the next six months, uh, we'll be covering four of the Mendelssohn symphonies and also a concerto album with the great uh, Latvian violinist Vadim Guzman, which we had to cancel. Guzman was, was here with the Neko last year and did incredible Shostakovich concerto. Getting back to Mendelssohn, as an orchestral musician, I have to tell you that what I find the most amazing challenge for the relationship of musicians and conductors in Mendelssohn, are tempi. Mm-hmm. It's very hard in Mendelssohn to find the right slot for the tempos, isn't it? It is because what's easy to tongue for the winds is hard to play off the string for the strings. And so, you know, you just take a perfect example, the scherzo in Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, it's one of those those challenges. And, and in the, well, the ever-popular Fourth Symphony has has problems in the first and fourth movements, you know, of, and the, this, of a similar And the Scotch nature. Symphony, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I find the Scotch Symphony always very difficult, especially the last movement and the coda of the last movement, coming up with a tempo that makes some sense. Yeah. That it's not so fast that it doesn't sound flippant, but it's, you know, it's very, very hard. All right, I'll have to see if I can uh, please you when it comes out. You'll have to tell me. <laughs> have to tell me what you think. It'll be first on the list here. Going back to your early uh, history uh, as a budding young conductor, you, you've told me that you wanted to be a conductor from a very early age. Yeah, I started going, I grew up in New York City. As I said, I was born in New York City. Um, started piano just before I turned six. And I was an incredibly shy little kid, but apparently as soon as I, I took the piano, Part of it was uh, my mother got me to go to my first lesson with a bribe for chocolate. That there was this fantastic. This was long before the years of designer chocolate, uh, but there was this fantastic mom and pop chocolate shop on the corner, right by where my soon-to-be new piano teacher was located. And the bribe worked. I love music. I love chocolate, and I'm fat. What can I tell you? But uh, the the uh, it worked tremendously well. The, the, it clicked. I had a fantastic first teacher. And so when I turned nine, I started going to the Young People's Concerts, which were then conducted by one Leonard Bernstein in New York uh, at then Philharmonic Hall, now Avery Fisher. And it certainly wasn't the first one I went to. It was, I think, the fourth or fifth concert I attended. Um, He did – so I was now 10. He did Respighi's Pines of Rome and – I had never heard the piece. I'd never heard anything like it. And he described these four vistas in Rome 
so graphically, and then the orchestra was so amazing in that music anyway. Um, so, so, And they did all sorts of visuals. For example, I remember the percussionist Buster Bailey actually using an old Victrola for the Nightingale and putting the this big heavy needle down on the, the, the 78 to do the tweet, tweet, tweet at the end of the third movement. Um, it's just extraordinary. And I walked out of that concert in in some sort of ecstasy. And I said to my mother, I want to be a conductor. And she's like, yeah, right. Because um, up till then, I wanted to be a fireman. So, you know, she, you know, especially driving the back of the hook and ladder truck, again, somewhat in control, but, uh, <laughs> but still, you know, I suddenly wanted to be a conductor. And the, for, the one person who really took it seriously was my godfather, who's the principal timpanist in the Met. He's still there. He's, I think, about to turn 83, bless his heart. He's still principal timpanist. And, but at that point, he, and he's been there since 1946, I want you to know. But at that point, because neither of my parents were musicians, he just said to my mother, look, if he's serious, and he seems to be serious, talking about me, he needs to start coming to as many rehearsals and as many performances as possible. So ha- having been brought up and lived five blocks from Lincoln Center, I spent three nights a week at the Met. And those were the days, yes, I was alive during the golden age of voice. You know, we always hear people talk about the golden age, but I remember Birgit Nielsen and Jess Thomas and Tristan Odisolder with Berm conducting. I remember De Frauen Schatten with Krista Ludwig and Walter Berry, Berm conducting. I remember Luciano Pavarotti's debut. I remember James Levine's debut. I remember seeing Renata Tabaldi still. And of course, Richard Tucker and Robert Merrill were the house tenor and baritone in those days. It was an amazing time. The young Marilyn Horn, you know, all her early appearances. And you can imagine how exciting it was for me, just to put this into perspective. In 1999, uh, virtually, um, what, uh, 30 years later, I'm now making my New York Philharmonic debut with Marilyn Horn. And, you know, I mean, it was just, uh, you know, I still can't get over how happy and lucky I am that I get to do for a living, for my job, something that I've wanted to do my whole life. And, you know, now that I'm 47 years old and I'm sort of approaching that elder statesman status as a conductor, I can look back actually and smile at all my critics who would often talk detrimentally about how I always seemed so happy. I couldn't possibly be a serious conductor because I wasn't a miserable curmudgeon. But I find it very hard to be miserable when you're getting to do exactly what you've always wanted to do. I mean, that is such a blessing. And especially to do something in such a great field, such a great art. You know, and and also, I mean, not meaning to to get even mawkish and sentimental here, you get to meet such great people along the way. I mean, I've known you since 1988, you know, and when you think about it, I mean, we're coming up on 20 years here. It's fantastic that the friends you make in this business and the music that you share together, these are these are presents. These are rewards that you can't ever thank anybody for because really you're just doing your job. But at the other side of the coin, what heaven a job can be. Amen. Andrew Litton, thank you so much for coming in and speaking this. Thank you. <laughs> it's my pleasure. That's all for this edition of the NACOcast. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to NACOcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting us on the web, 
nac.ca slash podcasts, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.